Some of you don't, so I go ahead and get that out there. Yes, we have uh, scribes and Pharisees still in church. I'm one of them. But I say it often, I'm a recovering professional. You see, I cut my teeth in the professional world, being held accountable and responsible for every six minutes of every single day. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But now, nowadays, I can come to a meeting and find myself getting a little bit antsy if someone's just like one minute late for a meeting. I can uh, honestly find myself getting a little bit frustrated when I sense that someone is wasting some time on a meaningless task. And if I'm honest, when I come to prayer, I can find myself wondering, am I getting anything done? Am I making any progress? Am I throwing time away? This is the last sermon in the series that we've called Ask. When you pray, what do you ask for. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What if we all started asking for the same things? What if these things were for the benefit of other people? You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what they ask for. Let me let you guys in on something that I've been asking for just lately. I find myself praying and asking for this more and more and more. I'm asking God to help me see to help me realize a great dream. I would love for our church to become a people driven by the gospel into community and on mission together. That's what I want to see. And I can tell you what, it's going to take a lot more than me, our staff team, or even Robert Green preaching faithfully the gospel over us week in and week out. It's going to take God's church empowered by God's people. That's what I want to see. So here's our action step right from the top on a sermon series about prayer. Let's pray right? Let's pray. I'm asking you guys to pray over the next several weeks to pray for a movement of the Spirit of God in this church. You see, as the people of God who've been graciously given the power of God, we're meant to do something. We're meant to do something. We're meant to change things for the glory of God. What needs to change? What needs to change? Maybe, perhaps, it's simply the way we pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are the all-powerful and all-glorious King of the universe. I have no business standing before you right now, much less your people. And yet you've empowered me with your spirit and given me a word to declare over your people. And I ask humbly before you, God, to take this word and make it explode in the hearts of people today that we could change things for your glory. For we know that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach? Only how to pray. God desires a deep and ongoing relationship with you. Not because he needs us, but because he desires to share himself with us. So the way we relate with God is really, really important. And prayer is how we communicate with him. In Matthew 6, we find the master teacher, Jesus, giving us a pattern for prayer. Now, he didn't intend for this to be rigidly recited word for word all the time. Rather, it's a, it's a pattern. When he says, when you pray, pray like this. Okay? It's a pattern for prayer. The master teacher gives us a model prayer teaching us how to pray. So let's pray it together. Let's put it up and let's pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be that your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's really good, church. We know that prayer. We know that prayer. It's so familiar. But perhaps familiarity with this prayer is part of the problem. Consider this quote from Martin Luther. How many pray the Lord's Prayer several thousand times in the course of a year? And if they were to keep on doing so for a thousand years, they would not have tasted nor prayed one iota, one dot of it. In a word, the Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr on earth. Everyone tortures and abuses it. Few take comfort in its proper use. The Lord's Prayer is rich, but we don't explore its depths. It's like running past a mine filled with treasure, but without the ability to access the mine and go in to explore. I'm, I'm for sure guilty of this. I am for sure guilty of this. Maybe you're like me. I grew up praying this prayer at least once on Sunday, and at least once before every football, baseball, soccer, tennis, track, you name it, I prayed it at least once. I have rattled this prayer off countless times only to throw it away. So if prayer is one of the primary ways that we relate with God, then perhaps our familiarity with this prayer is a real problem. We're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom in on the last sentence of the Lord's Prayer today because it takes us into the depths of relationship with God by showing us three attributes of who God is. So here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. The big idea today is that God is the all-powerful and all-glorious King of the universe, and yet He is near enough for each one of us to talk to. Now, we do preach the Bible here at Finder and Church, and we do so uh, at, with our very best intentions, and we try to do so transparently and with high integrity. So I want to tell you guys, as we teach on the last sentence of the, of the Bible, of the, of the Lord's Prayer, that it's not in my Bible, okay? I want to give you guys a little background on this, okay? It's not in my Bible, and chances are it's not in your Bible either. Matter of fact, the last sentence of the Lord's Prayer is omitted from most of the original trans, uh, translations of uh, manuscripts of Scripture. Here's why. It's not present in those original manuscripts. It lends most scholars to believe that it was not in the original prayer of Jesus, but rather it was added soon after because it was customary for the Jews of the day to add in a doxology to the end of their prayers, a way of giving praise and glory and honor back to God. But While it's not in Matthew 6 where the master teacher teaches us how to pray, it is found in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. There we find another king, King David. He's presiding over a ceremony. He had just instructed God's people, the nation of Israel, to bring in a great offering. And when the whole people come and lay the offering at his feet to fund the construction of the temple, David looks not at the people. He doesn't give praise to them. He casts his eyes heavenly. And that's where we find him in First Chronicles 29, 11. He says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Yours. It's a possessive pronoun. The kingdom Supreme power and ultimate glory all belong to God alone. So it has been, so it is, and so it will be forever and ever. Amen. That's what we're saying when we close out the Lord's Prayer with, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Three points today. If you've heard me preach before, you know I'm probably going to give you three, so I'll keep with the trend. Three points today to show us the big idea, okay? The big idea that God is the all-powerful and all-glorious king, and yet he is near enough for each one of us to talk to. Three points. God's kingdom is near. God's power is something he shares, and God's glory is something to see. First point, God's kingdom is near. God's kingdom is near, and the king commands action. Yours is the kingdom. The kingdom is God's. It's not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's not even your favorite preacher, Robert Greene's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. His sovereign rule. God reigns supreme over all things. So what is the kingdom of God? It's two things. It's a rule and it's a realm. Okay? It's God's rule and it's the realm in which he reigns. The rule of God. The rule of God places God as king. He's the rightful king because God is the creator of everyone and everything. This takes us right back to the garden and the story of creation. That's where we find him. That's where we find God. After creating the world, God took man and he put him in the garden. And in Genesis 2.16, we see that the Lord God commanded man. Right there, we see God's authority and kingly rule on full display. God is setting the rules. He's setting the rules. He's setting the boundaries of his kingdom. Inside the kingdom, man is blessed with unhindered relationship and access to the king of the universe. Man has everything he needs right there. But outside the kingdom, man is cursed. Genesis 2.16, we see, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, the king and creator of all things, made man to be in close and intimate relationship with him. But just like Adam and Eve, Each one of us has gone outside of the confines of his kingdom. We have rejected God as king. We failed to obey his commands. And that's bad news. You see, there's a consequence to this. There's a penalty and a consequence. Man is sent away from the garden. Never again would man have such unhindered access to the king of the universe. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God, the king, could have dropped the hammer. The king could have said, off with their heads. But that's not what he does. Listen to what he does right after that. In a word of grace, he draws them out of their hiding and into the light of his presence with some questions. He didn't drop the hammer. He he ministered to them with a word, drawing them out of their hiding with some questions. And rather than send them away without hope, he sent them away with the hope of a Savior. Right after man disobeyed the rule of God, destroying the relationship, God announced his plan to bring them right back home to bring them right back to the garden and into great relationship with him. There's an offspring coming. The seed of woman will come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. That's Genesis 3.15. And it's that Savior who takes us into the realm of God's kingdom. The realm of God's kingdom is in the human heart. The kingdom Jesus came to create is God's reign in the hearts of his people. The human heart is the realm in which Jesus came to reign. So when we say yours is the kingdom, we're actually saying that the kingdom of God is near because the king rules my heart. This is exactly what Jesus says when he began his earthly ministry in Mark 1. Verses 14 to 15, we see Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is saying that the kingdom is near. It's here and here are the keys to get in. Repent and believe the gospel. In Luke 10, Jesus says the same thing when he sends out his 72 followers. He says to them, go to a person 
and declare to them, say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's Luke 10, verse 9. Now, wait a second. Wait one second. In Mark 1, Jesus says that the kingdom is near. But in Luke 10, a little bit later, chronologically in his ministry, it's his followers that say that the kingdom of God is near. How can that be? How can that be? How can the kingdom be near if Jesus was not physically present with his followers as they went? How can that be? Because they brought the kingdom with them. God now ruled in the realm of their hearts. He shaped them in such a way that he controlled their desires. That's why they obeyed him to go. The gospel is an authoritative word that goes out to draw people into relationship. Now, those of you who know me pretty well, you, you know that I love the USA. I love the USA. I'm wearing USA socks right now for crying out loud. I don't have a good sock game like uh, Charles Waterloo down here, but I try. Papa Chuck, give me some pointers, man. I got USA socks on today because I love the USA. And it, as, a, as a lawyer, I'm kind of marginally interested in the way we govern ourselves, okay? Well, the USA was founded, the United States of, of America was founded with a governmental system that, where the authority stems not from the government, but from the consent of the governed. That's why we're said to have a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But not so. Not so with the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's a kingdom ruled by a great king. And God does not rule by the consent of his servants. Rather, he rules by his sovereign authority. God rules whether we vote for him or not. And yet, this is the same great king who desires a great and deep relationship with each one of us. There is an in and out rhythm to deep relationship. We see this in how we connect with God and how we connect with other people. You can't be intimate in a hurry. You can't be intimate in a hurry. But in the hustle and bustle of a monotonous routine, we miss out on the treasure of actually being present. You can't be intimate in a hurry, church. So what would it look like for us to slow down and just be? What would it look like for us to slow down and just be present with God and be present with other people? What would it look like? And when it comes to other people, I want you to know you can't pour out from an empty cup. You can't pour out from an empty cup. So how is our relationship with the only one who can fill it? That's the question. In Matthew 28, we find the king giving another order. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Church, this is an order. It's a command issued directly from the king of kings and lord of lords. And it comes from his heart to bring people into relationship with him. So where do we start? Where do we start with this? Man, how about the place where we spend the most of our time? At home or at work? Here's a little exercise. Do it in your small groups, okay? I pray that you would do this in your small groups, and I pray that this exercise, a little practical tool, would help us find a starting point, okay? If you've got a pen and paper, draw a tic-tac-toe board. For the millennial generation, it's like a hashtag, right? <laughs> Place your name or your little stick house in the center space. And then fill every empty space around that space with the names of the people who inhabit the spaces around you, whether that's your house or your office space. Now, what is one relationship that you can develop and deepen over the course of the next several weeks? What's one relationship? That's the name that I want you to pray for over the next four weeks. Okay? Then you simply do as, as, the, as the king said in Luke 10. Okay? You pray, you ask, 
the Lord of the harvest, to prepare that person's heart. You go to that person, you do something nice, and then you tell them why. The kingdom of God is near, and the king commands us to act wherever we are. Second point, God's power is something he shares. Now, God doesn't hoard power. He gives it away. The power is God's, and we really get this one. Like, we get this one. Life is hard, and it so often reminds us just how powerless we are. So what is the power of God? God's power is his ability to do all that he wills. It comes from his omnipotent character. Omni means all, excuse me, omni means all, potent means powerful. God is all powerful and able to do all that he wills. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The word for power is dunamis. It's where we get our word for dynamite. So the Lord's prayer reminds us that God possesses all power in heaven and on earth. Power to create, power to save, power to continue to enable the Christian to continue in the Christian life, even and especially when life gets hard. Check out this verse in Acts 1.8. You, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I mentioned earlier that I'm a lawyer. I know a little bit about witnesses, but at its basic level, we all know this, a witness is someone who testifies for another. Jesus is king, so one way that we can serve him is to talk of him. What do we say? The gospel. We speak of the power of God with the power of God. Romans 1.16 says, it defines the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is real power in the gospel. And it doesn't matter who shares it or where you share it. Last Sunday, a couple of friends took my four-year-old son to play golf while I was up here helping with a membership class. Uh, they were on the driving range, I think, and one of the guys points out, uh, sees this little, little kid striking a ball. He actually makes contact. It's impressive, I guess. But he comes up to my son and says, hey, man, it's pretty good. Is this your daddy? And my son, you got to meet this kid. But he says, nah, that's not my daddy. My daddy's a preacher. So apologies to my friend who doesn't apparently look like much of a preacher. <laughs> but he said, nah, my daddy's a preacher. The guy says to him, he says, what's he preach about? Softball. A little four-year-old, Coy, crushed it. I, have, I wear a bracelet around my wrist that I've used to teach him the gospel. Okay, My son can recite it. Uh, at, a, at the drop of a hat, and he, he stepped up the plate and he had a home run here. But it's got different beats that correspond to different pieces of the gospel presentation. And so my son just tells this guy straight up, looks him in the eye, says, and he's thinking, I know what my son's thinking, gray bead, I sinned, red bead, but Jesus bled for me on the cross. White bead, that makes us clean. Blue bead, we get to follow Jesus in baptism. Green bead, I get to grow in Jesus and Coy's favorite, the yellow bead. And Jesus will come back and live with us forever. My buddy's telling me this story. He's like, Nick, this guy's mind is blown. <laughs> His mind's blown. Crazy. The dude tells, tells Coy, he's like, son, I got to tell you, that's the best thing I've heard all day. Power. Power. When the power of the Holy Spirit brings the gospel home, we experience the dynamite 
of God because God makes the gospel explode in your heart. So how do you handle power? Do you grasp for it or do you share it? Do you give it away? Power and control motivate us to hoard and grasp for more of it so that we feel secure. But consider Jesus' example in Philippians 2, 6-8. through Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being in the form of God, Jesus was all-powerful, but he emptied himself. He gave power away. If you're a believer, you have real power already. Romans 8:11 says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If you're a believer, you have the power of the resurrection in your heart. Do you hoard it or do you share it? Look, church, your heart is not a silo. It's like a river. It's meant to flow out with power to other people. The power of the gospel is meant to be shared. And when the gospel goes out, it draws people into community. Power is in numbers, not isolation. So here's the next step. If you're not in a group, get in a group. If you're not in a group, get in a group. We highly value community here at Fondren Church because we believe just that. We believe that the gospel goes out to bring people into relationship. Listen to what a, a lady in our church said last week about her group. She, she posted on social media. She's kind of publishing or testifying about her struggle to find community last year. And here's what she says, talking about her group. They gave me a family away from my hometown and a place to run in both times of trial and great joy. Get in a group. There is power in community. And you'll have the chance next Sunday at 12 o'clock at Taste of Community Take a second. If you don't hear another thing I say all day, take a second and fill out a card. Drop it in the, at the kiosk on the way out. Last point today. <clears throat> God's glory is something to see. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're affirming that all glory is God's. So what is His glory? What is God's glory? The word is doxa. It's where we get our word doxology. It means weightiness, importance, priority. What's held up in glory is our greatest treasure, our deepest longing, and our fountain of hope. The glory of God is the radiance of His presence. Christians glorify God by declaring His greatness and demonstrating His glory. John 17, 20-23. Stay with me on this one. Jesus prayed this on the night He was betrayed, okay? I do not ask for these only, talking about His disciples already. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, talking about the disciples' word of the gospel, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed this on the night 
he was betrayed and he's pouring out his heart asking God to bring into relationship a people that have no business enjoying relationship with him. He says, the glory you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. He's praying for a union like a marriage. He's praying for deep relationship. Then he says, I desire that they would be where I am to see my glory. God wants you to be with him. Glory is something to see. It's something to behold. John 1.14, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the, we, we, and the word became flesh. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the father's son side. He has made him known. Jesus made God known. Jesus has made the all-powerful king of the universe known. He's made it possible for us to know God in relationship. Now, I am not a classical music guru. Most of you know me. I really don't even listen to music that often anyways. So really not the good, good stuff, okay? But even though I'm not a classical music guy, I have heard of a guy named Johann Sebastian Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. And even though his initials are JSB, he had the habit of ascribing the initials SDG at the bottom of all his musical compositions. You see, SDG stands for Sola Deo, glory. Glory to God alone. Bach didn't simply write DG or glory to God. Rather, he wrote glory to God alone. And that's what we affirm when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We have no glory in in us apart from him. As God's image bearers, we're created to show the glory of God to the world. Colossians 1.27 says it like this. Now Paul is writing to the church. He's talking about the mystery of the gospel, and he says to them, God's people, to God's people, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So do we make God known by our example? Glory means weightiness. It's a reality. It's the visible reality of what we humans can recognize and see. Glorifying God doesn't mean that you make Him better. It's about making the truth of who God is known. Just as Jesus made God known, so can we. Are we living in a way that demands a response? One thing I hear a lot of us saying is that it kind of it kind of brings to light the fact that we all kind of crave a, a balance in life, like this work-life balance. A lot of us change jobs because work is so crazy. A lot of us <laughs> spend more time at work because home is so crazy. We seek this work-life balance, right? We get it. But here's the deal. If glory means weight and importance, and if God is the all-glorious one, then our lives ought to be so far tipped out of balance that the world should notice how we live. But we don't. I don't. I don't. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can we be in relationship with God? How can we be in relationship with God? Jesus. Jesus came. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 10. The abundant life is a life lived in relationship with God. And that's exactly what we see in the garden. Adam and Eve, an intimate relationship with the all-powerful and all-glorious king of the universe. We get a picture of them walking in unhindered access to God the king. But that wasn't enough. 
They went outside the bounds of their relationship with God, seeking fulfillment through some other source. They took, they ate, and the relationship with God was destroyed. But immediately after the fall, God announced his plan to bring his people back into relationship with him, to bring them back home to the garden. God points to an offspring, one to come, a savior who will crush the serpent. We were all once sinners and enemies of God without hope. And that's bad news for our prayer life. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. But Romans three ten, None is righteous. No, not one. We all need help. But we need a Savior for our prayers to even be heard. And Jesus came to make it possible. How? How do you make it possible? Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus, God, the all-powerful and all-glorious King of the universe, became a baby. He grew up. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did so without sin. And on the night he was betrayed, we find him praying to the Father. We read it just a minute ago, John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's me. And I pray that's you. Jesus prayed for his people. And the very next day he prayed again, hanging from the cross. But this time his prayer was different. The only time that Jesus prays to God without calling him Father is from the cross. It's there that Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have one. Jesus was forgotten so that we would be remembered. Jesus Christ bore all the punishment that our sins deserve so that we could be with God forever. Jesus paid the price to adopt us into the family of God. Because Jesus prayed from the cross, we can pray the Lord's Prayer in Jesus' name, which begins with that beautiful and intimate term of deep relationship, our Father. The prayers are the faithful are never throwaways. Jesus takes them to the listening ears of the Father. So would you stand with me? Would you stand and let's pray the, to the Father in Jesus' name. Let's say it again this time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you don't know God as Father, I would love to pray for you. If your image of the Father is marred and broken through fallen circumstances, I would love to pray with you. I would love to pray for you for anything under the sun, because I know that God hears the prayers of the righteous, and I am righteous because of Jesus' perfect work on my behalf. For everyone else, let's end this worship service with a word of doxology as we praise and give glory back to God.